been a few writers who were rogues and vagabonds. And I'm Roger Moore. I didn't supply the microphone. Live from the gleaming, streamlined, state-of-the-art studios of OutlawRadioLive.com, nestled in our secret bunker somewhere in the Los Angeles area, following program produced with an artistic vengeance by Magic Matt Allen on the Outlaw Radio Network. I am the legendary Burl Bear. Frank C. Girardo is somewhere south of here. <laughs> I, I, I'm telling you, he's not going to be our co-host. He, he will when he can get here. <laughs> that's well, Mark. He's a guest, not a co-host. <laughs> that's Mark C.G. Boyer, our fact checker. As you know, ladies and gentlemen, scientific research <laughs> has shown that the average man or unaverage man will spend more time selecting a tie... I don't mean a tie stick. I mean like a tie you wear, you know, necktie. Uh-huh. More time selecting a tie than he does a career. However, Leonard Bouchel, when he was in high school, had the foresight and wisdom to pick his career, and he went to mom and, well, Leonard, you tell us what you told your mom when you picked your career. I said, Mom, I know what I want to be. She said, what is that, my son? I said, a drug dealer. <laughs> I bet she was proud of you. Nice to have aspirations. <laughs> Did she give you any advice? Did she well, warn you not to get busted? Why. I said, because I don't want to work nine to five like you do and be bored every night. This way I can work seven days a week and always be in action. Yeah, you were right about that. Yes, <laughs> and, and I was. <laughs> yes. As I think I said in the uh, on the hype the hype sheet on the website, from uh, Philly to uh, Haifa and Tel Aviv, Jamaica, Los Angeles, you build a reputation as a reliable and trustworthy, trustworthy. Uh, well, I didn't build a reputation because that would have been unwise. Yes, well, among those who bought from you, they trusted you. Yes, they did, and all they needed to know was that whatever I sold them, they could sell. <laughs> That's important. Yes. <laughs> Very important. Although, if I do recall, weren't you robbed by some fellows at gunpoint in some neighborhood? Uh, when I was 19, I was selling the last quarter ounce of Lebanese hash that I had brought back from Israel. And I was in a neighborhood that's been all over the news the last year called Kensington uh, in Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. It's now considered an open-air drug market in Kensington of Philadelphia. Wow. I was in a friend's basement with the last quarter ounce, and suddenly the two gentlemen I was selling it to pulled out pistols. One was a revolver held to my head, mm. and, I could, and I looked to make sure there were bullets in the chambers, and there were, Ooh. and the other one was an automatic pressed against my heart. Yipes. And they said, yeah, we'll, we'll take that from you and whatever money you have on you. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was quite an experience. I didn't lose my bowels, but it was quite nerve-wracking. Uh, and I wanted to make sure they knew I was taking them seriously, but I didn't want them to know that I was petrified. Mm -hmm. So the deal went down. In other words, the robbery went down. They walked me to my car. I got in, and about a block away, I just started crying hysterically because I realized, my God, my life was just in jeopardy, but I made it. So there's like the heightened sense of... of, of uh, like victory? <laughs> fear and victory, yes. Fear, almost like dodging, you know, a bullet in wartime, 
and I realized that I made a declaration and a vow at that exact moment that I would never deal drugs again in that neighborhood. <laughs> oh, why? I'm never going in that basement again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was more like a debasement. <laughs> oh, dead on bump. Well, uh, see, that's the thing about if you're going to have that kind of career, you're going to have a variety of interesting adventures, and chances are you'll meet interesting people, like the fellow who befriended you, I think, uh, in Israel. Uh, who became your close personal friend long enough to try to get you busted in a... In a uh... Uh, yes, well, you mean the gentleman who helped us buy hashish yeah. and... Uh, what is it? I was actually in Jerusalem. Yeah, so that's a spiritual a place later, to buy. Yeah. Just as my partner and I left the kibbutz, the kibbutz was raided. So he was <laughs> selling hashish, but he was also turning in people for an additional reward. That but seems that was many years ago. Well, yeah, I hope it hasn't been recently. How long have you been out of that business now? I've been out of that business. 25 years and four months. Oh, guess keeping good track. Uh, <clears throat> how did you get the il, uh, the ill-guten body? Or il okay. body how did you get the material out of Israel and back to the States? Uh, the night before our flight, we bought girdles in Tel Aviv, and we stuck, uh, at the time, bricks of Lebanese hash were wrapped in very thin canvas in 200 gram denominations. Mm -hmm. And we just put a few in our girdles and put on our pants and sprinkled a little talcum powder to keep the smell from going out too far. And to keep from getting chafed. Yes. <laughs> getting chafed? Yeah. From the rubbing Neither again. of us were chased. Oh, chased. No, not C-H-A-S-T-E. Uh, <laughs> I have images of Midnight Run. And your partner there, I can't hear him when That's, he says questions know. or say I have, uh, I have images of uh, Midnight Run. You ever seen the movie? You've seen every movie ever made. You've probably I, seen Midnight Run. I've seen Midnight Run. That was Turkey, I believe. Right. And he had a lot more drugs on him. Yes, he did. I think they might have been hard drugs. Not to say that the police would have dealt with us any differently. Uh, and I believe that was based on a true story. Yes, it was. Well, is that your true story, Mark? Were you the guy that was... Uh... Oh, yeah, I spent uh, I spent four years in the Turkish prison. Yeah. He's a mule! <laughs> Just because he looks like one doesn't mean he is one. Mm. Uh, I can't hear Mark. I know no one can hear Mark because he forgets he has to use the microphone. He thinks merely projecting will will get I mean, the. He's afraid to get too close because he knows who was using it before him and yeah, what I mean, they were using it for. Yes, that's the dangerous part. Uh, I seem to remember correctly. Speaking of, of smuggling via the airplanes, you had a um, a delightful young woman that you convinced to strap all sorts of uh, hash to her body and put her on a plane. <laughs> Yes. What's the, what's, what's the, what's I just the found that kind of amusing because I seem to remember that you had to have this deep discussion with her the night before that everything was going to be just fine. Well, we were in a little hotel in Paris, and the night before she was supposed to leave, she either had a, a, a nightmare or she actually started realizing what she was about to <laughs> yeah. do and started yelling and freaking out and crying, saying, I can't do this, I'm going to get caught, I'm going to get caught. And I convinced her 
with some handiwork that it was, she wasn't going to get caught, and she didn't get caught, and we she made money, and everybody lived happily ever after, more or less, at least for a while. Yes. Ah, uh, transitioning now to a totally different <laughs> aspect of your life. Thank God. To flash into my, if you were. Uh, uh, hanging out with uh, Robert Downey, senior, man in your own age group, more or less. Yes. Uh, you appear in many of his exciting motion pictures. I think it was just one. At <laughs> One's <least>. enough. <laughs> but it worked on a couple, yeah. But was it two tons of topaz to. Uh, I think it ended up being called uh, Jive. No, no, or it ended up being called Two Tons of Turquoise to Taos Tonight. Yeah. And I think it was also had a third title uh, that was ended up being the official title. And I'm looking for the DVD box now so I can tell you. Uh, Did you get star billing in this? Uh, but I, I can't find it. But moment by moment, probably. Moment to moment. Ah, that's... By moment. Moment to moment. Correct. Yeah. Did you get billing on this? Like if I get the DVD, does it say starring Leonard Bouchel? I don't know. I I, I get a, a a cast credit, and uh, I don't think it's promoted as uh, <laughs> on the DVD box, but it's somewhere in there. And it was a very complicated movie for Bob to make because he wanted to make something without a plot. <laughs> well, a lot of people do that. But told a story without a plot, and he realized as he was editing it that without a plot, he never knew it was when it was be over. <laughs> <laughs> so it took him a long time to edit, not knowing when it's over. So that's almost like, like a uh, Mobius strip. That's like uh, uh, Dennis Hopper's film, The Last Movie. Uh, similar yes. sort of thing. It goes in a, a big circle. Bit, well, yes, that, that was true. Yeah, I like uh, that. So here we are in uh, 2020? Yes, 2020. Time goes by. Hold on, Rita. I need to take my temperature. Hold All on, right. please. Okay, he's taking his temperature. Okay, um, uh, don't use the rectal thermometer this time. Yeah, you never know where it's been. Yes, well, correct. on second thought, you do know where it's been. Yeah. Well, you don't know who's in. <laughs> well, at this point, I really know where I'd like to put it. <laughs> we won't ask. But I, before we get on to the, the, the next phase, which is where Doris gets her oats, uh... You were walking, he drops you off at the, uh, what he thought was the bus depot or the bus stop or something, so you could get home, and you go for a walk, and you go by uh, Folk City and stop in for a... There was a screening in New York that ended at 11 o'clock, and I realized, um, oh, oh, it was a screening of, of his film... Greaser's Palace. Oh, that's a good one. And uh, afterwards, I was in the village, and I did take a walk, and I saw a place called Gertie's Folk City. Yeah. Uh, a club down there in the village. And I decided I, I could use a Heineken, and I went in, and uh, I saw Tom Waits at the bar. Hmm. And I thought, oh, wow, this is cool. There's Tom Waits at the bar. And I got my Heineken, I sat down, and about ten minutes later, I see somebody backing into the room with a with a film camera, and he's backing into the room. And the two people following him into the club was Joan Baez and Bob Dylan. Oh, how and nice! I thought, oh, this is even getting better. <laughs> and behind them was Allen Ginsberg. <laughs> uh, nice, two boys. Okay, let's see what's going to happen now. 
And it turned out to be the owner, uh, I forget his first name, but it's Gertie's. It was his birthday, and a number of people who he had given their, you know, their start in, in, in their, their career back in the village decided to come and serenade him. Wow. And it was also the beginning of the Rolling Thunder review, uh, which explained the movie cameras. Mm. Uh, and so for the next three hours, uh, we were entertained by uh, Patti Smith, the very early days of the punk movie movement. Uh, Bette Midler sang her song Friends that was written by Buzzy Lindhart. They sang together with the entire audience chiming in at some point or another. And one folk icon after another, including Bob, including Joan, uh, got up and sang songs. Uh, but not before Allen Ginsberg let everybody in a five-minute chant just to, like, you know, Clear climb the vibes. Room. And one by one, everyone got up and sang. And, uh, and the evening ended at 2 in the morning with Phil Oakes singing. Wow. In that incredibly painful voice that he yes. had, that beautiful voice that he had. And I think he did end up taking his life he did, shortly yeah. thereafter. Which was very tragic. A beautiful voice, talented songwriter. It was very tragic. Yeah, it was an, it was an amazing evening. And everybody in the club, obviously no one left once yeah. they saw who was... <laughs> Time who to was. leave, Bob Dylan showed up. <laughs> Nobody leaves. And they're all looking at each other like saying, is this, you know, are we this lucky? Is this really happening? Yeah, I thought of you when I saw the Rolling Thunder Review movie, and they had that clip where he's walking in, you mm -hmm. know, and I'm looking at where I know I know Leonard's there in that audience, but I uh, try to spot him. It's like trying to spot you on the Ed Sullivan show. Yes, yes, in the back of my head. I forget yeah. what the back of my head looked like at that time. Yeah. Uh, but it was quite an extraordinary night, and I remember afterwards, uh, I had missed the last train, I'd missed the last bus, and I just walked from, uh, I think the club was on 4th Street, I just walked from 4th Street up 6th Avenue to the Penn Station, and it, and, and it was and it was just when, and 6th Avenue at that time, even though you don't know it, because is all the flower distributors, mm -hmm. uh, and they all had their, their gates open or their, their whatever, and it was where all the flowers come to New York in Manhattan to be then, you know, delivered to whoever and wherever. Right. So in the middle of the night, it was all this color and aroma that sort of fit the whole evening. Mm, perfect. After seeing those incredible people uh, sing and play their heart out, not for money, just for, uh, to you know, just to appreciate Gertie for having given them a start. Boy, sure so did. that was a good night, and uh, yeah, you do... You know, stay open and don't make plans. You never know where you're going to end up. Yeah, that's kind of a Bill Murray's thing. You know, you see him show up at people's birthday parties and things like that. Unplanned. He likes that spur of the moment stuff. Mm -hmm. You mm -hmm. also wound up on the Ed Sullivan show on stage. I was looking for the back of your head there, too, with uh, Melanie. Yeah, my brother's uh, best friend was uh, somehow become Melanie's manager. She was appearing on the Ed Sullivan show, and they wanted to uh, 
imitate or, or suggest a little folk club on stage. So my brother got a call and said, hey, can you come up to New York and sit on the stage at the Ed Sullivan Show? And so we said, of course. Yeah. It was only 90 miles from Philadelphia. We drove up and pretended we were at a folk club uh, during Melanie, uh, who I'm sure anybody over 60 remembers. Well, I remember it quite uh, well. Burl? Burl? Yeah. yeah. A brand new pair of roller skates? Yeah, but I got a brand new key. Okay. She married Lou Adler. My memory serves me well. It's been a lovely yeah, evening with her. Uh, the, uh, the movie I was thinking of is actually Midnight games? Express. Yeah, the Laker games? I never went, took her to the Laker games, but... No, I said <laughs> the gentleman that sits next to Jack Nicholson at all the Lakers game is Lou Adler. Oh, yeah. yeah. Right, who, who, who I heard give an interview once. He says, I created the Monkees. I had so many hits. I produced so many incredible bands and musicians. And on my tombstone, it's going to be the guy who sat next to Jack Nicholson. Nicholson. <laughs> That's what I could put on my tombstone. He sold a lot of tickets. <laughs> yeah, I bet, yeah, I'm sure That's, Nicholson did. Yeah, well, Melanie uh, came over to Robin Sherwood's house in Seattle with Victor Stratike, who uh, wrote the uh, the radio column. These actually have radio columns where you talk about what was going on on the radio. Mm -hmm. is, now it would be. They're playing the hits. <laughs> that would be it. And um, we were smoking a lot of pot in those days, but Melanie, bless her little heart, she didn't smoke any pot. She just sat there and listened to us talk and smoke, and she was very sweet. <laughs> talk and smoke, huh? Yeah, that was it, talk and smoke. We were both blowing a lot of smoke at each other in those days. <laughs> Maybe that was a big part of her act. Yeah, Who knows? Could, could have been. Ed Sullivan was sure crazy about her. You thought she was the greatest thing since roller towels and wind-up ducks. I didn't know that. I didn't know that. Yeah, that was a big day. Yeah, he just thought she was Ed fantastic. Ed Sullivan was a big fan of Melanie's. He was. Huge. Just thought she was fabulous. And uh, he was right. Very talented woman. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of the first big performers that don't only have one name. Yes, that's true. Well, what about... What about uh, uh, um, my mind just went blank, so I'll skip it. I had one in mind, and then whew, gone, gone in sixty seconds. Well, she wasn't that. She was, she was kind of cute. Well, that's good. That used to happen more often. So you're, you're, I see you're taking your ginkgo biloba. Oh yeah, I saw him at the Fillmore. He was great. <laughs> he was opening act for Jethro Tull. At the East or West Fillmore? <laughs> oh, well, West, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, you see him on the East. You saw a lot of people on the East. You saw Janis Joplin and Crosby, Stills, and Nash. Stacy well, Keach, unconscious on a couch. Music did at that time between the Atlantic City Pop Festival and the Miami Pop Festival, and and of course the Woodstock. Uh, that was uh, an incredible few days of. Were you, of uh, were you there at Woodstock? Yes, I was. Well, yes, so was, was Barbara Cream. You two might have bumped into each other there. Who was Barbara Cream, my significant otherette? Oh, I I was at the I was camping by the lake. <laughs> I'll tell her that. <laughs> if she was in the lake, I saw her. <laughs> Lady in the lake. Yes. Yeah. Uh, we uh, previously when you were on the show, I think it's almost exactly a year ago. You told one of my favorite stories. I'm going to ask you to tell it again before we get into your experience, strength, and hope. And that is 
You're the only guy I know who was doing a radio show that gets raided by the cops. <laughs> uh, we had a radio show in Atlantic City. It was called uh, WLDB. The Underground Shoots Up at Midnight. Oh, great. <laughs> we had a show from uh, midnight to four uh, on the weekends and midnight to two during the week. And it, it was incredible, the music that was coming out that summer. That was actually the June and July before Woodstock. And I was in my, uh, and they ra the police raided our apartment. The police raided our apartment and uh, they had my brother's name on uh, an arrest warrant. Uh, so I called him, I said, get out of the station. He did. But three days later we said, okay, it's blown over. They, it was just a nonsense. And he went back on the air. And while he was on the air, the police came to the studio, which was in a, you know, those old mobile home studios. Yeah. And uh, arrested him on the air <laughs> while our third partner, uh, Joe D., called it like it was uh, a baseball game. That's amazing. That must be, I wish I had a tape of that. That was one of the great moments in broadcast history. It was, because you could hear the, the footsteps of the police. You could hear, you know, <laughs> hands up. Yeah, put your hands behind your back. Are you, are you Bruce Buschel, blah, blah, blah. And they, they took him away. And, uh, you know, it, it was, they, they thought they found hashish in our apartment, which is ironic since I was a hashish dealer. Yeah. But what it was was this old, it was an incense called opium incense, and it looked like black hash, but it wasn't. Oh. Once they did all their... Ran all their tests and went, uh-oh. <laughs> yeah, they, they dropped it, obviously. Uh, I think they were just hassling us because... We were playing rock and roll uh, before anybody else was underground rock and roll. That's and a good reason to rate a radio station for playing Santana, rock and roll. To Miles Davis, to Fred Neal, uh, to Crosby, Stills, and Nash, and then right into Chicago Transit Authority. Yeah. Maybe they thought we were too eclectic, so they busted us. <laughs> it was an anti-eclectic uh in Atlantic City, yes, yeah, that is in New Jersey, as you know. Now, uh, anti-eclectic ordinances aren't quite the same as corner lounging, which is what... Well, that was the first time I was arrested. I know what... I'd only been... That was the first time I was arrested. The night before I was to start high school. The night before I was to start high school, my brother and I were on a corner uh, at a candy store and the police pull up and they arrest both of us. For, and they for, literally put us in cells. He was over 16 or 18, so he could sign himself out, uh, but I couldn't. And my mother was out of town. Uh, so I was in there until three in the morning until the local committee man, uh, uh, Mr. D'Angelo, came and signed me out. And that's the kind of things that local politicians could do back then. They could get you out of jail. And so the next morning, I'm in high school, all knee high, on very little sleep, if any, listening to orientation, where they're starting to tell us the rules of being in high school. Mm. And I'm thinking, you're telling me the rules of being in high school? I was just in jail last night for nothing. <laughs> and I think it started my anti-establishment, my anti-authoritarian 
spend. That's good. So it was a worthwhile experience. Because after all, the uh, the Constitution... Do you think going through life having an anti-authoritarian attitude yeah, that, is a good way to live? Yes, I think that's healthy. I think it's... <laughs> In moderation. It's, it's challenging, it's healthy, and I wouldn't want it to be any other way. After all, I mean, the right of free assembly is supposedly guaranteed under the Constitution, and yet we have anti-loitering laws. And corner lounging has to be one of the strangest. I mean, I remember we looked it up to try to find out what exactly the law was on corner lounging, lo- lo- whatever the hell it is. <clears throat> uh, loitering? No, it's a lounging, anti-lounging act. If you bring a lounge chair to Philadelphia and put it on the corner, you're in big trouble. You can't stand on the corner and watch all the girls go by. It's against the law. Well, I think it's too to limit crowds. Uh, but obviously they were using it just to harass us. Well, yeah, obviously. I, my my best friend at the time was a bookmaker, and we'd be driving places, and he'd get pulled over, and they and 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 they would ask him for his license. Same cops, they'd ask him for his license. He'd put a hundred dollar bill under the license and hand it to him. And they'd look at the license. And they said, "Oh, that's okay. You can go." Yeah. I think everybody was taught back then to have like a 20 or a 50 with a safety, with a paper clip underneath your driver's license. It was very common at the time and probably still is in some places. I think it is in some places. In fact, there was a a quote in, uh, watch this, Mark, I'm going to plug one of my own books. Oh, only took 10 minutes. You only took 10 minutes. (laughs) Betrayal in Blue uh, tells the story of the chief of police when the cops wanted to raise, there's any cop who can't make extra money <laughs> on his beat doesn't deserve to be a policeman. <laughs> but you should be able with graft and corruption to make a good living doing that sort of thing. Well, you're, you're doing a community, a public servant. Yes. <laughs> so you're arrested for corner lounge. That's one of the strangest. Well, uh, years ago in Walla Walla, Washington, which has some strange racial hang-ups, if... Uh, uh, what does that mean? What's, a, what's that a euphemism for? That's a euphemism for uh, uh, racism and mm-hmm. uh, selective enforcement. Right. Uh, my wife at the time was an educator at the community college. She had a brilliant student. He was like a, a math genius. Uh-huh. So the newspaper wanted to do a feature story on him. Yes. So he goes in and he's being interviewed by the newspaper. And his little brothers are waiting for him outside the newspaper. When he's done, my wife and he come out and hear the two kids are spread eagles across the back of a cop car (laughs) for being Hispanic in public. (laughs) Right. This is about the way it works there. And, of course, if they happen to be uh, black, that's a a gang infiltration from the Tri-Cities. Interesting. Yeah. Don't worry. Got to be careful there. Bad fact, other interesting stories of late. Yeah. Uh, in fact, uh, I was on an airplane with a, a fellow from the Department of Justice who was flown out from Washington, D.C. to talk to the judges in Washington State, especially Eastern Washington, to tell them, uh, you're sentencing people uh, who are brown and black to much more uh, longer sentences than you are people who are not. And we're concerned about that. Uh, stop uh-huh. doing that. And so they yeah. they backed off. Well, hopefully things have improved a great deal. 
Yeah, hopefully. Uh, since the 1860s. Yes, <laughs> which is where many of the people are still living. <laughs> well, they're, 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 they're kin, their ancestors, yeah. their children, their great-grandchildren. So there you were, minding your own business, worried perhaps that you were going to get arrested for something. <laughs> Probably smuggling. I still am. <laughs> still yes. I think the statute of limitations is up on almost everything that you've done. I, when I got seven years, uh, what they call clean and sober, that's what I celebrated the most. Yeah, they knew they couldn't come bless you for anything. Uh, yeah. The yeah. statute of limitations. God bless that ordinance. <laughs> How wonderful. So there you were. Words you were going to get busted. You had a brilliant idea. If they're going to come try to arrest you for drug smuggling... It's best for you to be in a treatment center. Well, that's one way of putting it. <laughs> What's another way? Uh, I was afraid I was going to get arrested, and I figured it would be better if I was in a treatment center. Oh, <laughs> ah, that's okay. a different take on it. <laughs> I had a very close friend of mine who was arrested for bringing a, a, a boat down the uh, San Francisco Bay with uh, tieweed. You mentioned that earlier, picking mm -hmm. out a tie, tie weed, yeah. tie sticks, a very powerful. He was busted, and they took him in, obviously, and he would come to my house every six months to buy a pound of Hawaiian pot. And I thought, oh, God, you know, what's, you know what, what, what kind of pressure is he going to be under? Uh, I happen to have a, a very late night, uh, one night, uh, drinking and doing way too much drugs, and I woke up the next day incredibly sick. I felt like I'd been poisoned. Uh, I went to get, uh, I had an 11 o'clock appointment for a massage in a little town called Fairfax. Somehow I got there, five minutes into the massage, I excused myself and went outside and threw up. Hmm. I bet she I was back disappointed. In, back, in the, back on the table. Ten minutes later, I said, excuse me, I have to go outside and throw up again. And, I, and it dawned on me, like, this is not why I moved to California. <laughs> I can't even lay through a massage without getting sick. Uh, and at noon, I had a chiropractor appointment scheduled, and I thought, well, i got to cancel that. And so I left the massage, and on my way back to my, my house, I stopped at a phone booth, which I had to do a lot. And while I'm at the phone booth, the only person on earth that I knew who had actually been to a rehab, uh, and this was before it was popular, this was back in 94, she was there in 93, she came up to me at the phone booth. Wow. And uh, when I finished my call, we started talking, she said, how you doing? And I thought, God, I haven't thrown up for like a half hour. I'm doing okay. <laughs> Meanwhile, the sweat is flying off my forehead and hitting her. And we're talking. And she says, you don't really look that good. I said, well, by the way, did that rehab you went to have an 800 number? And she said, yeah. Uh, and uh, she said she would call me later and give me the number. Uh, I, when I went back to my house, there was someone taking pictures of my house. Um someone I didn't know. And I waited till they left, and I thought, oh, that's the police taking pictures of my house to show to my friend who's in jail for him to confirm that's where he scored his Hawaiian marijuana. And I thought, I better get out of town. 
And when the guy was done taking pictures, he left. I went in. I packed up a bag or two uh, and headed down uh, to Big Sur, uh, which is sort of my retreat, my vacation spot, so to speak. And when I got down there, uh, the next day I called the 800 number that she had given me, and it was to the Betty Ford Center. And I remember the phone booth I was at. It was at a place called the River Inn, and it was 800, so I was at a phone booth. I called them. Uh, I guess they asked me a bunch of questions, and at the end they said, yeah, you, you qualify. Uh, and I, I was surprised because I had never gotten a DUI and I'd never overdosed or anything. Uh, but I had used drugs every single day of my life for 25 years, every single day. And they said, yeah, you qualify. I said, great. Uh, and then they said, how do you want to pay for it? I said, oh, right, pay for it. I said, well, I have some insurance. Uh, my mother had me as, on the payroll in some camera store in Philadelphia uh, and the guy was was uh, had had an affair with her years earlier, so he gave, he you know he did her favors, and one of them was had me on the payroll uh, where I could get my insurance. Mm. And so I said to them, I said, well, I have this you know insurance, and they said, give us the numbers. I had the card, I gave them the numbers, and they said, we'll run the numbers. If we don't take you, we'll find a hospital that will. I said, a hospital. I ain't sick, I just need a little R&R. You know, no, no hospitals for me. And they said, well, we'll get back to you. The next day I was at the bar at Ventana with a friend up there and I get a call on my cell phone. Yes, I had a cell phone in, in 94. Most drug dealers did. We were very uh, up on the newest technologies. Uh, and they called and they said, your insurance covers this 100%. And I remember just crying hysterically. I just like fell to my knees and I thought, oh God, the jig is up. I have no excuse not to go. Uh, and they told me it was like gonna be six days uh, before they had a free bed. And, uh, and, that was, and that's how I got there. And I remember driving up uh, and I had like two joints, uh, one for the ride there and one for the ride back. And uh, my friend in Studio City said, let me hold the second joint. It's only two hours. You know, take the joint with you, but let me hold the second joint. I don't ever know what happened to that second joint. I always thought maybe, you know, John Lennon is smoking it in heaven, or <laughs> maybe Marley is offering it to Prince to help him not to die on those opioids, and if he'd been getting high on pot, maybe he wouldn't have been doing fentanyl. But anyway, the point was I drove there, I smoked a joint, I got so lost, uh, and eventually I get there, the Betty Ford Center, and I go up to the registration, whatever they call it, and I said, hey, is this where I check in? And the woman looks at me, she says, this isn't a hotel, this isn't where you check in, this is where you're admitted, because <laughs> it's right next to Eisenhower Medical Center, so it's connected with a, with a great hospital. I said, okay, okay, okay. And uh, that's how I uh, ended up giving up drugs and dealing by being there for 28 days and realizing it was actually possible to go that long without getting high or drinking. I didn't know that it was actually 
possible in the world of quantum physics to go <laughs> that long without getting high on something. Does that answer the question, which I have no idea what it was? Yes, it does perfectly. Did you have okay. any drugs in your house when you, when you went up to Big Sur? Expecting, you were expecting the police to come and raid the house. Raid. Oh, so I thought, yeah, I thought, well, they never did. That was not what, who was taking pictures of my house. It was the owner who lived out of the country who was thinking of selling it, and she sent some real estate agent to take pictures, but didn't tell me. Mm. You know, so that was actually the, 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 you know, the answer to that mystery. Who's taking pictures of my house? Some real estate guy, but I was not told that the house I was renting was going to be put up for sale. And she sent someone to take pictures. But it was a miracle because it made me paranoid enough to want to go away for a while. So you come out of Betty Ford's. And I thought if I was at Betty Ford and the feds came to get me, I could bring Betty Ford out from behind a tree. (laughs) The Allen did with Marshall McLuhan and Annie Hall. I could say, well, well, wait a second. I got the first lady here. (laughs) You got to wait a while. Look, look where I am. This is like, you know, the, the, the territory. Like, you can't get busted at a rehab. I don't know if that's true or not. Sort of like international waters. <laughs> that's right. King's X. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so... Uh, so when you get out of there and you and you decide to not deal anymore, what do you do for a living? Or did you have some money stashed? I had no money stashed, which was possibly why I realized I had hit bottom on every level. <laughs> Uh, you know, emotionally, physically, I was think. Uh, well, you start to sell off artwork that you've bought over the years. You sell off some antiques. Uh, you borrow some money, and you eventually start working. So, what kind of job did you get? The first job I got was actually as a photographer taking pictures. Uh, for a real estate enterprise. So you could go take pictures of your own house? <laughs> <laughs> it was no longer up for sale. Oh. Did, uh, yes. Uh, did you, yes, so that, that was my first job. Did you have any, any funds that. left because over after, from your prior career? No. After 25 years of drug dealing, it's not exactly your Rolodex is very useful. <laughs> no, I guess not. I like all the people I met <laughs> could help me out. And it's not like I spent 25 years learning a skill or a trade. You know, when people said, what do you do for a living? I said, I don't get caught. <laughs> That's a good line. I like that. Yeah. That's okay. very important. So uh, one day, minding your own business, you get hold of your old pal, Robert Dowdy, Sr. Yes. And you say, I got a wonderful idea for a nonprofit. And he says, all your ideas are nonprofit. <laughs> Yes, he did say that. And what was your brilliant idea? That was 11 or 12 years ago. Uh, well, by, at that time, I'd already spent time. Uh, I went back to college and got a certificate as a certified drug counselor. I worked at uh, a couple rehabs for a number of years. And there was a man in, in L.A. called Buddy Arnold who had started something called MAP. MAP, which was Musicians Assistance Program. And he raised money to help musicians with drug problems go to rehab because he had been a saxophone player from New York, ended up in L.A., 
and wanted to help other people get clean and sober. So he started Musician's Assistance Program. And I thought, well, God, I know a lot of writers, uh, and why shouldn't there be an organization for writers who have succumbed to severe alcoholism or drug addiction? And for writers, it's even more insidious because they work alone a lot, and they work you know, with their computers, and they work... Uh, not with a band where you, where other people can see them going downhill because they're isolating because they work. So I started Writers in Treatment, uh, the acronym being WIT. Buddy Arnold had MAP, I had WIT. You do. And we started Writers in Treatment uh, as a nonprofit. Uh, one of the ironic events in my life was that as I was coming home, from my job as a drug counselor, uh, my Volvo got T-boned by a Ford Explorer that never slowed down at a street corner uh, in Los Angeles and hit the passenger side full force. So the airbag on the, fi- fi- on the passenger side blows up. Mm-hmm. The car spins around. I thought I was being abducted because it was such an incredible experience where there's lights flying around. It was nighttime and the car was moving in the air. And I remember when the car finally stopped, someone ran over to me uh, and said, I saw the whole thing. If you weren't in a Volvo, you'd be dead. That's right. And so the whole car was totaled. I, luckily, being on the driver's side, my airbag didn't go off, so I didn't get punched in the face. Uh, I was able to open that, my door and walk away from the accident and feel invincible. <laughs> I saw the damage, and the, the, the SUV was incredibly damaged because uh, it hit me right at the door, right at T-bone. If it had hit me to the left or the right, I think my car, I would have I died. Uh, but it just punched the car, you know, into the oncoming lanes, and uh, I called my son to come pick me up, and he came down. He says, "Dad, don't you think you should go to a hospital? Just you know, for you know, just to just, you know, just see if you're okay." And he said, "Don't you think you want to go to a hospital in case you decide to have a lawsuit?" I said, that's brilliant. So there's a hospital not too far from where the accident was, <laughs> Brotman Hospital. I went to Brotman. I was there for about four hours. They took some x-rays, you know, all the vitals and all that. And eventually I went home. So I thought, that's it. I'm so happy to be alive and uninjured uh, that I'm just going to let it go. So I went to my regular AA meeting, and I, I shared about the accident. And afterwards, a guy named Robert comes out to me. He says, you know, I got into this really little accident six months ago, and this lawyer got me a lot of money. Maybe you should call him. I said, okay, give me his number. And I got the number. I called the guy. He said, come on in. And a year later, I get enough money from the insurance company uh, to, have, to start a nonprofit. Because cool. it's not inexpensive. People say, oh, it's impossible. You know, it's really hard to start a nonprofit. No, it is not. There are lawyers that you hire who do all the work. Well, do do all the paper with IRS. 
you still have to fill in you know, who you want on your board of directors and who you want the secretary to be and who the treasurer is. But as far as all the paperwork, the official government paperwork, that you can pay someone to do. And I did. And lo and behold, uh, we started Writers in Treatment and immediately put out the word and got calls from people from Seattle, from Denver, uh, people who needed to go to rehab. Uh, we either got them scholarships or we paid for them to go. Uh, and about six months into it, I thought, we need something to raise awareness that this organization even exists because we didn't have the kind, any kind of money to start promoting it. You know, and it wasn't like before the internet, it was 90, uh, 2008 actually, uh, when we started. And I said, well, why don't we start a film festival, yeah. a, 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 drug and a, a drug and alcohol film festival and uh, put the word out that way. And we checked and we, no one else was doing it anywhere in the country. And so we started the Real Recovery Film Festival and Symposium uh, 12 years ago. And I've been doing it every year in cities around the country. It's the longest quote unquote recovery event in the country. Uh, seven days in Los Angeles every October, seven days in New York City every November. And we've also done three day festivals in Denver and Richmond and Fort Lauderdale. And we now have people sending us films literally from all over the world. We, 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 we got on the radar as the, as the one and only film festival for drug and alcohol movies uh, made by independent filmmakers, first time filmmakers, uh, industry pros. And we've expanded it to not just include alcohol and uh, drug addiction, process addictions, which means gambling, sexual addictions, and also mental health issues. Because we obviously realize how closely entwined some addictive behaviors are with mental uh, mental health uh, or mental wounds, as they call it. And so we have we showed 80 films last year at both film festivals. Obviously, a lot of shorts, a lot of 10 minute, 20 minute, 30 minute films that are all compelling. We've never seen anybody walk out on a film at the Real Recovery Film Festival because we don't take films that aren't entertaining, informative, and honest. And that's our criteria. Honest depictions of the issues, well-made, great sound, great cinematography, and entertaining and sometimes even inspirational. <clears throat> and I see light bulbs go off in front of, on top of people's heads in the theaters. I see people who are thinking of starting to drink and use again, seeing a film thinking, nah, I think I'll stay sober a little longer. Yep. Other, you know, people on the cusp who see themselves on the screen and don't want it to get worse. Or they see people on the screen who look really good and happy and healthy, and that's where they want to... You know, but that's the direction they want to take their lives into. And so it's a community event. Like I said, seven days in L.A. in October, seven days in New York. Uh, if anybody listening has any films dealing with mental health, addictions of any kind, you know, realrecoveryfilmfestival.org. And, you know, and real is spelled R-E-E-L, because our first film festival... All the films we showed were on 35-millimeter film. 
you know. Mm-hmm. And now there is no such thing as 35 millimeter film except in the very rare art houses. It's all digital now. And so, but we still spell it R-E-E-L, uh, realrecoveryfilmfestival.org. Uh, you can look at some clips from films we've shown. You can look at some clips from films we're going to be showing. And if you know anybody with any kind of material that we might be able to use, please send them our way. You also do, except uh, the t- time of we're doing this show originally, it's just been postponed due to the uh, coronavirus issues. That's Experience, Strength, and Hope Awards. What's that all about? The Experience, Strength, and Hope Awards we started 11 years ago by acknowledging high-profile individuals who wrote, who've written memoirs about their career, their lives, but also about their addiction and recovery. Uh, so we've honored people such as Academy Award winner Lou Gossett Jr. for his fabulous book and his coming out of the closet, so to speak. Uh, and the year after that, astronaut Buzz Aldrin, Magnificent Desolation, about his career as an astronaut, but also about his alcoholism and his recovery and his participation in recovery programs. Great guy. Uh, he just turned 80 years old last month. Uh, no, earlier this month. Uh, no, I'm sorry, last month. Anyways, that's Buzz Aldrin. Mackenzie Phillips, well-known actress, advocate, wrote a book called High on Arrival. Uh, we gave her the award one year. Pat O'Brien, a great sports announcer, television announcer. Uh, some very interesting people. Jane Velez Mitchell, who had her own show on CNN for a number of years. Uh, this year, our honoree is Lee Steinberg, uh, better known as Jerry Maguire. Oh. The movie Jerry Maguire was based on his life uh, as the leading sports agent in the country. Uh, in fact, his most recent... Uh, he's been agenting for... Patrick Mahomes, and if everybody saw the Super Bowl this year, great quarterback from Kansas City who single-handedly won the game. Mm. Uh, that's his. That's one of his new clients. Uh, he wrote a book called The Agent about his career as a sports agent, but also about his bottom and his arrest and his time in a rehab and sober living. And so uh, the event is scheduled for this coming Thursday. Uh, However, due to the proclamation of Governor Newsom, all events uh, for more than 250 people have been postponed and canceled. Uh, So we get 350 people at this event every year. The Experience, Strength, and Hope Awards. You can look it up online. You can see some some videos from previous uh, previous events. So we had to postpone it till next year. and so we have, and it will go on, and it will go off, just not during this incredible, challenging times that it seems like the whole world is talking about the same thing. And it's not the Kardashian. Is that for a change? Yeah, that's a plus. <laughs> yeah. So uh, next year. In Jerusalem. Strength and Hope Awards. It's our 11th year, and uh, we're looking forward to many more. Now, does this impact uh, 
the writers and treatment as far as the income goes? Not having this Are you event? suggesting we start a GoFundMe page? <laughs> no, I'm suggesting maybe people send you money anyway. It's No, of course it affects everybody, especially the NBA, especially bands that are not touring anymore. It is, uh, yes, it affects uh, a lot of us. It affects a lot of people. Uh, a lot of, you know, especially in Los Angeles, and I know you're... Listeners are all over, so everybody, I'm sure, has uh, local challenges and local hardships to consider. And hopefully the government will do the right thing, and people who can't work will get some, uh, you know, some uh, sick time pay. And uh, it's just an extraordinary event. I'm trying to find out what it really means and and why this is happening and it's not just because of government you know inefficiency uh you know i i I was thinking the last time civilization was sort of perished was when the meteors hit the earth created the dust clouds no sun coming in everything dies and and that was like a meteor and and what which is a big thing. And now it's like this little and, and microscopic this is, virus. And this is the flu. Who's knocking people off. No, it's off. not a flu, it's a virus. It's, it's a, a virus. A, it, like a flu is a virus. To another. That's what a flu is. Yes. But I know. Yes. I thought it had something to do with the chimney. We'll get through this. <laughs> yes, we this, will, this because will it's simply everybody a flu. Oh, God. Let's I'll tell health more, do more to take care of their health, do more to help other people who might not be in good health. Uh, I think so many lessons will be learned, uh, and people will hopefully continue to wash their hands. <laughs> I wash my hands with the whole thing. Ten I'll tell you. I'll tell you. When I want factual information about a disease, I have my choice. I can talk to a doctor or a disc jockey. <laughs> I think the disc. Hey, I take the disc jockey. <laughs> Thanks for trying. I know that I've been holding my phone in my hand for the last hour. Yeah. And I'm going to go wash my hands because I've been holding my own phone. <laughs> Good thinking. Thank you, Leonard. Thank you, Burrow. All right. Have a watch. great day. That's it. Bye-bye. Hey, Burrow. Whoa. What's next? Magic Man out on the Demons of Decadence. Live in the Lightning of Lounge on AdlerRadioLive.com.